Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, Agency Owner? If you're new here, I've got a free ebook on how to scale your business to multiple six and even seven figures by overcoming your dependency on referrals, doubling your profit per project, and removing yourself as the main bottleneck in your business. All you have to do is DM me the word gift on Facebook at Brent Weaver. That's facebook.com slash Brent Weaver. And I'll send you your guide on how to achieve freedom in business and life. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Agency Show. I'm your host, Brent Weaver. And today we're hanging out with Matt Seltzer. Matt does market research for ad agencies and marketing teams. He spent four years as the senior research analyst for the What Happens in Vegas campaign, which I'm sure we've all been aware of at some point in time of our life, or at least we know the tagline. And now he partners with agencies to deliver surveys, focus groups, and overall insights when needed. Matt, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, man. So I got to start with this Vegas campaign. You spent a lot of time on that. Yeah. In your research, did you have to actually like research what happens in Vegas or? No, that stays here. <laughs> but I'll tell you, we researched a lot about the value of that. I'll give you a cool one. I mean, the, that whole campaign, really, its goal is to bring economic value to the city of Las Vegas. And our number one import is tourists. You know, we're trying to make sure people come here and have a great time. And, you know, those ads, demonstrably, we can prove this. If someone likes the ads, which 90% of people do, but if someone likes the ads, they're 19% more likely to come back to Las Vegas in the same year. And you think about the value of an ad and the value of a tagline, that's pretty powerful that you can quantify it like that. So was your research project with them to validate that it was working and that it was it was worth spending more money and continuing to amplify it? Or was it part of the process to actually come up with a campaign like that? Myriad. All the answers, all the questions you said, the answer is yes. I wasn't actually there when the campaign was developed. And that came from a really cool ad agency out here in Las Vegas called R&R Partners. But what I was doing, I got to be part of um, that. We were doing focus groups. We were doing surveys just to see the value of the brand and the brand meaning Las Vegas. But separately, we got to work on projects. I'm a big data guy. I love surveys. I mean, I know you mentioned that even in the beginning that like I geek out over that. And there's a survey that I got to work on for years. It's been in the field since the 1970s and it's called the Las Vegas Visitor Profile Study. And what it does is it surveys real people in Las Vegas. You can go onto the Visitor Authority's website right now and find it. Uh, to this day, they update it every year. And it tells you what do people do in Las Vegas? How much do they spend on it? And how much are they thinking about six months out, three months out, two months out from their trip? So if you're someone in Las Vegas, meaning a business or an agency, and you're trying to develop campaigns around what does the Las Vegas visitor look like, that study that I had the pleasure of working on for many years literally reveals that data at all times. And it's unique because not a lot of uh, destination marketing organizations do that. And I assume they're doing that to pull more people into investing in Vegas, whether that's tour operators, advertisers, brands to basically come to Vegas to do business. And exactly. I mean, that's the gamut. And there's, um, I mean, on the, on the flip side, even the people who are currently here, I mean, you think about some of the largest resort operators on the planet are based here in Las Vegas. You've got MGM, you've got uh, Sands Corp. I mean, uh, some big players. 
And even being able to know, one, to be able to know what the Las Vegas visitor looks like at any time from a data-driven standpoint is valuable to their marketing. And two, I always thought this was cool that it comes from a destination marketing organization, which means it's tax-funded. So if you're these hotel operators here in Las Vegas or even a restaurant owner or anything, you don't have to go and fund expensive research. You're already paying into that by being part of the local economy. And I always thought that was a really neat thing that the thinking behind the whole process is we can do better, we being everyone who operates in tourism in Las Vegas, by being equipped with some data. So let's talk through some of the things that you do with clients. You've mentioned a couple of them so far, running focus groups, running surveys, being able to look at the data and pull insights out from that. I'd love to start with focus groups. I think a lot of agencies, you know, the bigger agencies use focus groups, I'm sure, quite a lot. I think a lot of smaller agencies with maybe those small to medium-sized clients aren't using that specific tool very often or even at all. You know, what types of environments should somebody consider to bring in a focus group or a person like yourself to be able to pull insights from that? So that's the qualitative side of research, and that's a big chunk of what we do. And we usually recommend qualitative when you either don't know what you're looking for, you know there's something to find, but you don't necessarily know what it is yet, or if you have a very specific audience. So let me give you two examples. Let's say you're in brand development mode and you don't even have theories to test yet. We're coming up bare bones. Maybe it's a rebrand. Maybe it's a total new concept. Maybe it's product development in this case. Now you want to sit down with the real people you want to sell this product or brand to and ask them the questions about what they're looking for in a brand. You can't ask that literally. You have to ask it. You have to tease it out certain ways. But what we're trying to do is tap into your audience, which you're, you may already have designated for this, and what makes them tick. And then translating it back in such a way that a creative director can then turn it into logo or brand design. I mean, the, the, the gamut from there. I think I've said gamut three times in this interview. I don't say it that often usually. We don't judge. I appreciate that. Separately, let's say you've just got a very tight audience. Maybe nationwide, your entire audience is like 100,000 people, which there's niche products and services for that those small of audiences. But at that point, you're not going to be able to survey that audience or get data from them. And we'll talk about that, I know, and I'm sure in a sec. So instead, how do you reach insights from a small audience? But what if you sat down with 10 of them in two groups of five, and ask them real questions. And the neat thing about focus groups is it lets real audience members bounce ideas off each other. You can watch them ideate on the concepts that you're trying to learn more about, like path to purchase, the journey mapping, or separately, let's say you're doing an annual brand awareness type of focus group. And you just want to know, as an agency, we set out to do X, we set out to increase awareness. Did we do it? Did we move the needle? And again, using a focus group methodology like that, you can actually show whether or not people have deeper affinity toward a brand, what concepts they're looking for in a brand so they can put that into next year's planning. Hey, agency owners. I have an amazing product to share with you this week. Service Provider Pro. I'm absolutely in love with this platform. If you're currently running a productized service-based agency and you're looking for an all-in-one client management solution, this is for you. Service Provider Pro helps you sell services at scale. You can manage your clients, your payments, projects, all from one slick dashboard. Run reports, see where your projects are at, and give your team a single source of truth. And it all comes in a fully white-labeled package, so you look super pro in front of your clients. For more details and an extended free trial, head over to 
spp.co slash yougurus to sign up. That's spp.co forward slash yougurus. All right, let's get back to our show. With a focus group in particular, you mentioned two groups of five. This is qualitative research. What are some common mistakes that people make when they either prescribe focus groups as a solution to a problem or in the actual focus groups themselves? I feel like focus groups are like, I don't know, the butt of like creative and agency jokes every once in a while, of like, you know, what what people are going to say, like whether, whether they're really like, whether we get anything from it, you know? So what are some of the pitfalls? I'll tell you the two biggest pitfalls I see. One is if you're looking for data, don't have a focus group because it's it's not measurable. I mean, by the context of what we're doing, we're asking people open-ended questions. And if your goal is to bring a statistic to the table that 70% of the audience thinks this way, you're not going to be able to do that from that methodology. And I've seen that happen where we said, well, well, I was going to say, I think I'm sure many people have tried to pull like, oh, six of our eight, you know, six of our 10 participants said this, and we're going to, you know, we're going to bring a conclusion about something. That's exactly right. And that's exactly wrong. It's just not going to get you where you want to go. And what you never want is for someone to be able to poke holes in your research. Methodology comes down to that. The second pitfall, though, is I'm a talker. As you can see, I'm a talker. I cannot be a talker in a focus group. It is their job to talk. So it's real important. I mean, a lot of people are in our industry. We're marketers. We have something to say. It's time for us to shut up and listen. And when we do talk, it's about getting more out of people, more in the sense of... Actually, a friend of mine, uh, Rob Volpe, just published his first book with this. And the title of it is, Can You Tell Me More About That? And that really is the critical insight of leading a good focus group. It's ask few questions, let them do the talking. I mean, you have a discussion guide that's leading you, but really your job is to ask, tell me more about that. Share more, go deeper into what you're thinking. And what you'll find actually is a lot of people are really willing to go deep, deeper than we give humans credit for. We like to share our emotions. We all know someone who has an opinion they always want to share. Take advantage of that and get out of them what they're trying to seek. Because at the end of the day, the point of research is to create better inspiration and guidance for the agency world. That's going to come from deep emotions and insights. Do you ever get people kind of like in jury selection where you're like, oh, I got to get, got to eject these people out or make sure we avoid these types of people? I mean, are there are there types of people that are better suited for doing a focus interview? Are there people where you know if you get that personality in the room, you're going to be like, it's just not going to work? So personality management's a big thing to it, and I'll tell you, methodology is also caught up with some of those challenges. I'll give you for instance, and I, I said focus groups, but really what's picked up over the last two years is a concept called in-depth interviews or IDIs. Very similar to a focus group, the difference is they're one-on-one. And you start to take out that louder personality challenge from this. What you lose in this methodology is you don't get the bouncing ideas off of each other, but you do actually get a free space. And that's really what you want. I mean, you want your audience to be as comfortable as possible when they're sharing information. And I mean, half the time when we do IDIs, we'll do them on Zoom and the person will be literally lying in their bed just talking to us on their phone. And you think that's, I mean, maybe that's unprofessional, maybe it's too intimate, but separately, it's pretty darn intimate and it's unprofessional in a great exploratory way. I mean, that's kind of the point. We're trying to tap into this audience. So I say that because that's another way that the industry's caught up, that we figured out these methodologies around the personality management challenge, because that's a big part of it. But I will say, people and varied personalities, that's actually what we're looking for. 
your audience isn't one person. And the misnomer of research, I think, is that we're trying to take an average of everyone. And the best example someone gave me years ago is you take an average of your whole audience and let's say the average person in your audience has 2.3 kids. Well, what's interesting about that is I can guarantee no one in your audience actually has 2.3 kids. Right there, the the concept of average should kind of blow your mind. But then if you could say 40% of our audience has two kids, an additional 30% has a third child, and you can kind of start to see how you could change your value propositions a little bit different around a family offering. That's the difference where you're really trying to learn about people, people in clusters from a marketing standpoint, but people, and people are fascinating. I've often been told like, because, you know, using customer avatars or an ideal customer profile, it's a very common like branding or marketing tool in, in our tool belts. And I've been kind of been told, you know, there there is whoever your avatar is, like there's nobody that is that person. You know, they're even when we do it, we kind of blend people and you kind of create this like fictional character that you then try to create marketing for. But the reality is, and maybe the focus groups help us see this, is that you know, that one person doesn't necessarily exist. People often exist in in kind of very different, like polar opposites. Absolutely. Or- and, you know, there's something... So I love the persona concept, but a critical step that I think needs to come before it is segmentation. So, you know, again, we tend to think of our audience as one person and then we build the one persona. The concept of segmentation, and this has taken us back to, I mean, marketing was 301 for me. I remember that. But let's look at our audience and divide them up. Divide them up among demographics and psychographics, but separately divide them up amongst affinity, affinity for a certain product or a vertical. And what are the commonalities? And what you can start to do there is measure out the size of your different opportunity zones. And so maybe this audience segment represents 60% of our audience and this audience segment represents 50%. And I know that equals more than 100 because there's obviously some overlap between the two groups. But when you build your persona based on who that 60% looks like, it's not your total customer, it's who is this focused niche group. It makes those insights work a lot better in what you're talking about. Because otherwise, you're right, you fall into the trap of, well, we have one audience member, and maybe you don't. Let's talk about surveys for a little bit, because I think that a lot of smaller agencies or just in general, I feel like surveys are easier to set up and organize, right? Just create a, a survey monkey form or a woofoo form or a gravity form and go to our email list and send out a, an email, hey, fill out our survey and get an Amazon gift card or whatever. I mean, I feel like people do this a lot for their brands and on behalf of clients. What are the do's and don'ts when it comes to using surveys for market research? Biggest thing that I tell people, when we think of surveys in marketing, most of the time now, it's customer satisfaction. And I like that piece. I like that agencies are taking that piece on for their clients. But the way I always ask, if if you were going to get a chance to ask your 500 members of your audience, your real customers, any question you want, anything, you'd ask them about path to purchase, you can ask them about competitors, you could ask them about literally anything. And we say, hey, on a letter, letter grade scale, tell me how, how I did today. A through F. And don't get me wrong, I want to know if my customer experience my ex- and my brand experience are matching. I want that A. But you have an opportunity to ask any question that we want. And we can measure it and segment from that data that we we're just talking about. We shouldn't, as agencies, be leaving that opportunity on the table. I'll give you a fun stat, and this is interesting. 70% of small agencies are not equipped to run a survey, meaning it's not something in their wheelhouse right now. I'm the survey guy. I did this on, so I mapped it out. It's just not something that they're offering on a day-to-day. But if you ask agency clients nationwide, does your agency do surveys? 
95% of agency clients said, yeah, of course my agency does surveys. They assume it's part of the wheelhouse. And when we dove into that, well, what do they use surveys for? Oh, I'm sure they talk to people, hundreds of people to come up with the answers to develop brands, to develop my campaign. I'm sure they did that for my campaign. Even though coming from a small agency background, I know that's just not part of the process, but I see that as an opportunity because again, nearly 100% of the clients already think you're doing it and they already think there's value in those kind of pieces. That was a long, long long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, well, I think that so clients have an expectation that we're using survey in customer. I mean, I think so many people sit in a room. Now, these days it's Zoom, you know, five years ago, maybe it was a conference room and they might come up with a brand or they might come up with a concept or an idea. And then it's just like, off to the races. Let's get this website built. Let's get this campaign live. Let's run these ads, right? Let's do this stuff. And it feels like to me, sometimes surveys, asking our people what they actually want or validating those ideas, whether through the individual interview method, the focus group method, or even surveys, I feel like for a lot of creative or marketing agencies, it might feel like now we're having to kind of slow down. Even for the client's perspective, they might be thinking, oh man, now we got to, we want to go live with this campaign in a, in, in a week, you know, surveying and then and we're pumping pulling the, the data. Yeah. It feels like we're slowing down. So I'll give you two pieces to that. First off, you are completely right. It's going to go slower. I mean, it's a new, I literally illustrated sometimes that it's you're adding a third piece to what's otherwise a two-part puzzle. Come up with an idea and implement it. Now we're saying, let's slow that whole process down and learn something. But separately, everyone I think here, especially marketing people, understand the value of learning something. I mean, most people I know in our industry were, were conference junkies. We like going to uh, webinars. I mean, part of Zoom has been a blessing that I can learn something new every day. And part of that, we like to tell people we learn something new every day, but we also really kind of dig these new ideas. I mean, we like learning. It's the challenge for marketing really is velocity. Clients want to go, go, go. The solution there is to back up more and explain the value of what we're doing because the value of a survey, the value of any kind of research is to make sure that next step where we come up with the ideas is laser focused. It's not throwing spaghetti at the wall, which is a term I've used heard in every agency I've ever worked at. It's about if we come up with an idea, we know it's based on sound thinking behind what the audience actually wants. But separately from that, and this is where agencies have a real opportunity with surveys. So let's think through what the value of a survey is. And let's, I mean, really, let's say you have an audience base and you get to send them a survey. But let's not call it a survey. Let's call it an interactive form. Well, as digital marketers and content marketers, we know what we can do with an interactive form. We can take do some intake. We can do custom redirects. We can do engagement pieces. And all of a sudden, your survey becomes a lead gen tool. It doubles as that. It can become an intake form on your website and you're constantly getting data. So you're learning about your audience, but it serves a digital marketing purpose. Separately, let's say you get a thousand responses in a month because you also did your email marketing piece with the Amazon gift card, exactly like you were saying, which keep in mind, now you've created a focus for your email content. It happened to be a survey, but that's one of the biggest questions I've heard in digital teams is, okay, we got to send an email this week. What the heck are we writing about? Well, you have a topic now. Third, you've got data as a result. And what can you do with data? And we know this. I mean, you go to, oh, I'm drawing a blank on uh, Neil Patel's website right now. But you go there and, and data is half the keywords right now because everyone's looking for data or results or case study. And you can publish your data as a white paper, which we already know we can go put that behind a gate. You already populated your list from the people taking the survey. So you can send them a follow up with the gate piece. 
And all of a sudden, all we're talking about here is digital marketing, digital marketing in practice. And now all of a sudden, incidentally, your research has become tactical. That's the way to I've found to make it a little more robust in an agency world is to think through processes. I work with a lot of PR teams as well. And PR teams are thrilled when you can give them statistics and a white paper with statistics. There's so much they can do. They can pitch that to media. They can pitch that to podcasts. They could put the one big statistic as a headline for a press release. And all of it's predicated on the fact that the agency took the time to do research. But if their moneymaker is PR or digital, they found a way to make that research output tactical. Hey, what's up, agency owners? I want to tell you about one of my favorite white label partners, E2M. They can help with all your website design, web development, SEO, and content needs for your client projects. This includes WordPress, WooCommerce, Shopify, BigCommerce, Webflow, Duda, SiteGlide, custom PHP applications, and much more. Have peace of mind when it comes to your outsourcing needs. Let E2M become an extension of your team so you can grow and scale how you want. Check them out today at e2msolutions.com. That's E, the number two, M, solutions.com. All right, back to our show. At what point does a survey become usable data in the aggregate in terms of like having, is there a certain amount of responses that somebody should be aiming for before they start to draw hard conclusions? I feel like sometimes, you know, people might run a survey and get 24 responses, you know, like, is that really data or is it anecdotes or, you know? No, no, it's a valid question. So there's a statistics concept at the confidence interval. This is the margin of error. Let's just take that out of our mind. 400 is a phenomenal, statistically sound number of responses to get for a survey. And the best way to think of that in most target populations, if you get 400 responses, and let's say the average of is 50%, I'm, I'm not sure who loves podcasts, and 50% of the audience loves podcasts. It's actually much higher. I know that. But not the point. With 400 people, I can almost always tell you that it's not 50%. It's 45 to 55. And I can confidently say within plus or minus five percentage points, which is how I'm getting the 45 to 55 range, that this is the share that likes podcasts. And then I would in my head and my presentation round that to about half. And as a marketer, we can do something with about half. That's where 400 comes in. And that was the plus or minus five thing. 300 people, 200 people, that plus or minus number gets a little bit bigger, meaning you're not as confident about that 50%. Maybe it's 40 to 60% that that represents. If you've got 100 people, a great way to think of 100 people is that if one person says something different, everything changed by 1%. So now you start to see that 100 is a lower number. But also, if 50 people out of 100 like podcasts, I still feel pretty good about saying about half. Taking it down further into this is the the longer answer to your question. If you know you're going to get lower than 50 people, meaning that you're not going to be able to make sound judgment on that, my thought and the thought that we've really relied on is lean on the qualitative side. Just like we talked about in the very beginning, if you don't think you can get enough people to do a survey, we'd lean on a focus group or an in-depth interview study. Well, here we are, we're back at survey and we still think we might only get 24 people. So now you don't, probably don't want a lot of option box and check box questions. You want text box questions. You And I, I'm thinking through this in a form field concept, but we're relying on what's called open end. And you made the comment, just you know, are those just comments and quips? They absolutely are just comments and quips. Or better way to say it is it's qualitative data. And that's the answer is if you are going to get a lower response base and you know that either from you just have a small audience or you don't even have a big email list, lean on the tools that'll favor that. 
Because separately, if you get 400 people to take a survey and it has open ends, you don't want to read all those text boxes. It needs to work for your function. Yeah, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. So I feel like if you are trying to get quantitative results and you don't have a big audience size, then your survey just basically becomes another qualitative research point. You know, I think a lot of people out there might not be, you know, they might be running some surveys with their clients, but they're not a data person, but they do want to get insights. And I think they might be, you know, I, I know at least for myself, like I've definitely run surveys with less than a hundred responses. And I'm like, oh, this percentage of people said this and, you know, and start running that stuff without bringing in that statistician mindset of like, what's the margin of error here? It doesn't actually represent the entire audience. I mean, I think that's a really common problem too. It's like somebody has an email list of, you know, 10,000 people and you get 50 people to fill out your survey. I mean, that's 9,950 people that did not complete your survey, right? Like maybe the people that don't have time aren't filling out your survey and they fit a segment that you're like not representing at all. I think it's a common misstep where we we do that and we think, oh yeah, I got this many responses. I'm going to make a product decision or a business decision off of a small group of people. Well, and that's the challenge that you're always kind of weighing out, but thinking through the realistic nature of it. I mean, you mentioned 10,000 people. I know what a response rate is going to be on an email. You do. I mean, that's that's in our nature as agencies to know this. So thinking through what can we achieve? And then again, leaning on that. I'll tell you one other thing though that I love with surveys, especially when we work with digital teams, is let's say you have this email list and you email it to a survey to everyone on the email list. And one of the questions at the top of the survey is what's your biggest challenge with working with my company? Or what's your biggest challenge with working with companies like me? Or in that vein, and only 50 people respond. You just got 50 blog titles. Because that's what you're going to be able to do with that is you're hearing pain points and you think, I've got my content calendar written for the year now. That is some of the value that we get from it. And I say that because 50 is great at that point. Those are pain points. You know 50 people represent more than just themselves in a base of 10,000. There's commonalities among people. I mean, the reason that you're doing business with 10,000 people over the course of your business is you kind of gravitate toward like-minded people. And you know what kind of work you produce. So again, 50 people respond with their biggest challenges and you use that as a content opportunity for literally your next year you're going to address pain points of more than 50 people. In fact, you keyword targeted right, you're really going to address the pain points of more than 10,000 people. And that's where, again, becomes a little more tactical as well as data-driven. Because you can also still show a client the value in those responses and you can group them that maybe they were 50 blog titles that were different, but 20 of them really said this topic and 10 said this topic. And I can show that to the client. I love it. Matt, do you have a... This has been an awesome conversation, man. I love talking about the data side of of agencies and and what's possible for them with market research, surveys, focus groups, in-depth interviews, the do's and don'ts and all that stuff. Do you have a few minutes to stick around for our lightning round? I'd love to. What is the best advice you've ever received? Everything you do in life, make sure the juice is worth the squeeze. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? I have a lot of trouble letting stuff sit. And that's the entire reason I started my business. Can you share an internet resource, a tool or app that you use regularly that you think our listeners would find valuable? Hunter. Hunter Hunter.io. And this is not a research one. I love Hunter for those who don't know it. If you don't know someone's email address, but you know the company, it'll calculate the email address for you. Any tools on the research side that you can recommend? You know, you mentioned SurveyMonkey. There's a few other softwares I use. Question Pro is my favorite now. I love SurveyMonkey too. But I say it because there's free tools out there. You can build surveys today. And what book would you recommend besides your own and why? 
You took my book. Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to say. Well, I'm actually going to say This is Marketing by Seth Godin, which I have right next to me. Great book. Awesome. We will link out to This is Marketing by one of my favorite authors, Seth Godin. On our show notes page, ugurus.com forward slash podcast. We'll also link out to hunter.io as well as Question Pro, SurveyMonkey, and any other tools or references we made during this podcast. Check it out, ugurus.com forward slash podcast. If you listen to this episode week of, you'll see Matt's photo right up at the top. Click on him and lots of goodies and takeaways on that page. Matt, how can our audience find out more about you? Is there anything that you have that they can check out? Absolutely. So s2research.com, that's S like Sam, number two, research.com. I tried to make it complicated, obviously. Yeah, that's my website. Uh, That's all our social handles, Twitter, LinkedIn, everything. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. You can also connect with me on Facebook if you really like dad jokes. And then the other thing, uh, last year, I actually got to publish my first book. So that's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's called The Creative Catalyst, How to Create Better Marketing by Asking and Answering Better Marketing Questions. And this is my manifesto of research and marketing. Yeah, thanks. I feel like after our conversation today, even thinking about client discovery, doing creative briefs, doing any kind of market research, that book seems like a really good book for agency owners and their whole teams to read. Get the whole team, get a bulk discount with Matt and his team because I feel like there's probably some really good questions and methodologies for doing all the stuff that we talked about today. Absolutely. I was going to say that, and that's available. Let me know. <laughs> well, if you're looking for those those discounts, definitely check out Matt and his website, s the number two research.com. And again, if you're out and about, check out ugurus.com slash podcast. We'll put all of those links so that you can go friendly stock Matt and his team and see all the stuff that they're doing. We'll also link out to his book, The Creative Catalyst. Check that out on Amazon. Make sure you're following Matt. I think there's a lot of knowledge and wealth here for both us as agency owners, creative directors, and also creative and marketing teams. So definitely check out Matt's work. Thanks for stopping by the program today. Thank you. And that is it for this week's episode of the Digital Agency Show. Stay tuned each and every week for more great content coming to you to help you grow your digital agency so you can achieve freedom in business and life. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, if you want that free ebook on how to scale the multiple six and seven figures, all you got to do is DM me on Facebook, the word gift at Brent Weaver, and I'll send you your guide on how to achieve freedom in your business and life. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver. 